Thanks so much, Marco. Um, why don't we pray as we come to this passage again? Let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are the true and living God. Thank you that you are the one who spoke and this universe came into being. That you're the one who spoke promises of hope, of promises of mercy, of promises of life. Father, thank you so much that those promises have come to us today. And Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to hear your word this morning and to respond with repentance and with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for any here who this morning who are really struggling, who are full of doubts, who are full of pain, uh, who are full of grief. Lord, we pray that you would be near to the brokenhearted. Uh, Lord, we pray for us uh, this morning. Please be with us and speak to us in, in power by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to mention um, some things, and I want you to decide um, how uh, likely you think these things are on a scale of 1 to 10. So 1 is pretty uh, unlikely, 10 is pretty certain. Okay, so don't say anything out loud, I don't want to start any debates, just think in your head. Okay, so first, what about us having a general election next year? How likely do you think that is on a scale of 1 to 10? Or what about um, England winning the Football World Cup that's just about to begin? Didn't quite manage it in the cricket or in the ladies' rugby, but uh, what do you think? Don't say anything, just think in your head, scale of 1 to 10. Uh, What about more serious things? Uh, Will the economy get as bad as some people say? How likely do you think that is on a scale of 1 to 10? What about the war in Ukraine? We've been thinking about dragging on for another 12 horrific months. How likely do you think that is on a scale of 1 to 10? Well, what about spiritual things? Uh, what about ultimate things? What about God's promise of resurrection from the dead? Uh, how honest, uh, be, likely, uh, be, uh, be, be honest, how likely do you think it is that the dead will be physically raised? What about God's promise that Marco started with, that one day he's going to make a perfect new world where everything will be put right? Does that sound like fantasy to you? Or are you certain? I don't know what you um, thought of those last couple of things, but I do know that if you're a Christian, it is easy, isn't it, to uh, know what the right answer is. You know the number you're meant to be thinking of. Uh, So what if we looked at our lives, what we do with our time, how we spend our money, the things we say, and the priority we put on listening to Jesus, uh, the thoughts in our hearts even? What would all that reveal about our view of God's promises? Uh, What number would our lives suggest that we really put on the promise of resurrection and a perfect new world? With the thoughts in our hearts, if we could see them, and the choices in our lives, would that reveal total certainty or real doubt? Or a kind of half and half in the middle? It's easy, isn't it, to pick a number in our heads. It is much harder to live that out. And that's because it's hard, isn't it, to believe God's promises. Because there seem to be so many obstacles. So perhaps for you this morning, any talk of God at all, let alone kind of physical resurrection, just sounds ridiculous. You think none of this is true, perhaps. Or maybe for you this morning, there's a situation around you that's weighing on your heart, maybe a relationship strain or um, health difficulties or something, and it's so hard to believe that God will use that situation for good. Or maybe more personally, in the struggles you face, it is so hard to believe God, that God can bring change or can sustain you. 
Or perhaps for you this morning, you feel like it's easy to believe that God will do what he says, but for other people. That when we think of the temptation or the weakness or the doubts in our hearts, it's hard to believe that we'll be part of it. And God's promises could have looked pretty shaky um, to the first readers of Genesis. Uh, So Genesis begins what's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And they were written to the people of Israel on the edge of the promised land. And to them, God's promises could have looked pretty uncertain. So looking back, if you know the story, they'd seen the whole previous generation die in the desert because of their rebellion. Looking at themselves, uh, they knew that they weren't much different. Looking around them, the promised land was full of scary big enemies. Looking ahead, God says at the end of the Pentateuch that eventually they'll go the same way and they'll rebel rebel against God. Like us, it would have been easy to pick the right number in your heads, but in in practice, God's promises can look and feel pretty shaky. Which is why we need to hear what God says in Genesis chapter 22 this morning. Because uh, first point this morning, as Genesis opens, uh, God's promises look pretty shaky. Because uh, first point for us, God puts his promises on the line. Just look down at verse 1. Let me read verse 1, chapter 22 and verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering. And immediately, we should be thinking, what on earth? On so many levels, this sounds outrageous. Uh, In his book, uh, Richard Dawkins calls this disgraceful, appalling, and morally obnoxious. It's not hard to see where he's coming from, is it? Whether you know your Bible or not, this sounds horrific. But actually, the question's even bigger if we do know our Bibles. Because in many places, God is very clear that he agrees. He repeatedly says that child sacrifice, which the nations around Israel, the pagan nations, would have practiced, he says it's one of the things he hates most. But that makes the question even bigger. How can God ask something that he says is wrong? What does this say about God's character? Uh, But another thing that makes this question even bigger is that this isn't just any old son. So if we'd been reading Genesis up to this point, as we have in our church, we'd know that um, Abraham and Sarah, they they couldn't have kids. God promised them a child through whom he was going to save the world. And then in chapter 21, just before this, they've been waiting 25 years, and then God keeps this impossible-looking promise. He gives them this child, Isaac. And now, verse 2, he says... Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. So on all sorts of levels, we should be asking, what on earth? On a scale of 1 to 10, how likely do God's promises look now? How likely do you think they felt to Abraham as he heard these words? Is God good? Has he become some kind of monster? Has he abandoned his promises through Isaac? What is going on? But the thing is, God knows that we'll be thinking these kind of things. Uh, God knows that people like Dawkins will write these kind of things. Uh, Moses, who wrote this, uh, isn't stupid. So he knows what's come before. He knows the promises that God's made through Isaac. He knows what God says elsewhere about the wickedness of child sacrifice. 
he knows we'll be asking these questions. Which is why the chapter doesn't begin with verse 2, but with verse 1. So just look back at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him. So we're told up front that this is only a test. There is never any thought in God's mind of Isaac actually being sacrificed. As readers, we know that he is not going to die. Now, when it's called a test, uh, that might bring back bad memories of kind of sneaky teachers trying to catch you out or something. Um, But when God tests his people, it isn't negative. It's much more like how an aeroplane would get a test flight. So it's something that is there to prove that something works so that we can learn from it. It's that kind of test. And so as we hear this command in verse 2, God means us to ask, why is he doing this? What could God be showing us or teaching us that is so important and so worth us learning that he even puts his own character, even puts his own promises, as it were, on the line, his own goodness, his own consistency, like this. But actually we know that from the rest of life, that it's often in the extremes that we really learn things. So maybe you think you're good at heights, but it's only when you're standing on a cliff edge that you find out if you really are. And maybe you think you're in pretty good shape, you're pretty fit, but it's only until someone puts you through your paces that you really find out where you're at. And before this in Abraham's story, uh, we're probably asking the big question, can God give this old... um, barren couple, a child. And then, as we said, in chapter 21, he does. And so now in chapter 22, it's like God kind of takes us to the cliff edge. He puts us through our paces. Verse 2, raise the stakes. So we're not just asking, can God keep his promise to give a child? But can he keep his promises even in the face of death? Even when we're asking, is he good? Is he trustworthy? Even when everything inside us screams that he isn't. And so can you see, actually, it's really kind of God to give us a passage in the Bible that makes us ask, what is God doing? That makes God's promises look uncertain, or makes us even question his character. Because doesn't life often make us do that? Just like for Genesis first readers, it's easy to pick the right number in our heads. But in practice, God's promises, God's character can feel very uncertain. So this morning, it's like God takes us to the extreme to teach us, to prepare us for those moments. And in this chapter, God hangs death over Isaac because in Genesis and in our world, that is the big issue hanging over humanity. Actually, the real question isn't, can God give a child to a barren couple? The big issue is whether God can do anything about death. Because actually, ever since Genesis 3, you probably know, since Adam and Eve, when humanity turned our back on God, death has been hanging over us. And actually, I don't think anything could make God's promise of a new world of blessing look any less likely than the cold reality of death. And again, think back to the first readers. They knew this. If you know the story, at the golden calf, thousands of them died because of their sin. Uh, In the wilderness, a whole generation died out because of rebellion. On the edge of the promised land, there are scary enemies they think are going to kill them. So here, to teach them, to teach us, God puts his promises on the line, and it's like he hangs death over Isaac. 
But actually, verse 2 may not be the most shocking verse in this chapter, because look how verse 3 goes on. Just look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. And it doesn't just say, and he went. But instead, you notice how our writer slows down the story and piles up these actions. Look at verse 3. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Do you notice we're given all those details, but we're never told how Abraham feels. And I think that's deliberate. Because actually it makes us start to imagine what must be going through his head, which is far worse. I don't know what's more surprising to you, what God says in verse 2 or how Abraham responds in verse 3. But how could he go through all these meticulous details? Verse 4, if you look on, how could he go through this three-day journey? Well, verse 5 begins to show how. Just look at verse 5. Then Abraham, verse 5, said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And did you notice, as we had it read, how the servants don't actually do anything in the story? Um, He takes them with them, then he leaves them behind. I think they're only mentioned so that we can hear what Abraham says to them next. Look how verse 5 goes on. Verse 5, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. In in Hebrew, which is, this is first written in, the word come again is plural. So Abraham's saying, and we will come again. Again. So while Abraham may not know that it's a test, he is still confident that whatever happens, this isn't the end for Isaac. Even when everything around him, everything inside him, makes him, might make him question, is God good, is God trustworthy? Are his promises going to happen? Abraham says, verse 5, we'll come again. So God puts his promises on the line, and he does that, rest of point one, so we can see that he can be trusted. Because God made Abraham a promise. He said in chapter 21, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. And Abraham figures, look, well, if God said it, then it, it must be true. Whatever is going on around me, even in the face of death. And again, standing back in Genesis, trusting God, even in this extreme moment, isn't some kind of foolish leap in the dark. Maybe that's what you think it is. Maybe that's what you think Christianity is, just, just kind of a blind leap in the dark. But actually, just think about it. God who spoke this word to Abraham, he is the God who made all things with a word. So Abraham reasons that even death isn't going to be an obstacle. Abraham believes in resurrection. And so verse 6, if you look on, he presses on. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And then verse 7 is the only bit of conversation we get. Look at verse 7. Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Again, this helps us see how can Abraham keep going through this when God's promises look shaky, when his character is on the line, when everything around him and inside him says to him, no, 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 back down, stop this, stop listening, go your own way. Abraham believes that God will provide. Uh, Literally, he says, God will see for himself the lamb. It's like our phrase, uh, someone will see to it. He says, look, God has got it covered. Leave it with him. 
So as Abraham woke early and saddled his donkey and chopped that wood and travelled for three days and then laid the wood on his son, he's not saying to himself, this is obviously stupid, but I'll just blindly obey. He's not saying to himself, come on Abraham, pull yourself together, you can do it. No, no, as he walks up the hill, he's saying to himself, God will provide. God will provide. We will return. Because whatever it looks and feels like, God has promised, and I will take him at his words. And verse 9, again, slows right down. It's like every single movement is captured. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. Again, loads of details, but do you notice that we're told nothing about Isaac's part in this? But again, I think the author does that deliberately to make us think. Um, In verse 5, our versions um, called him him a boy, Uh, but actually the word is literally a young man. It's the same as what's used for the servants. Uh, And Isaac's strong enough to carry all the wood up the hill. So could Abraham, who's aged over 100, have bound Isaac if he wasn't willing? I'm not sure he could. But do you see how the author's saying that through silence actually conveys Isaac's willingness more powerfully. It seems like Isaac took God at his word, just like his father did. And verse 10, if you look on, Abraham really did. Look at verse 10. Abraham reached out his hands and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, here I am. In verse 1, we heard Abraham say to God, here I am. And then in verse 7, we heard him say the same thing to Isaac, his son. As if to say, who's he going to listen to when the crunch moment comes? And now verse 12, we know. God said, do not lay your hand, verse 12, on the boy, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So it's not that God didn't know this before, but now Abraham has demonstrated it. So, like we said, it's like a test that now makes visible what was there all along. That Abraham fears God. That means that he listens to and lives by God's word above everything else that's going on around him. He believes what God says, even when everything inside him screams that it's impossible. When everything says, is God really good? Can he be trusted? Even then, Abraham chooses to still believe what he says. God puts his promises on the line to show us that they can be trusted. But this chapter isn't mainly about Abraham and what he does. So the point of this this morning is not be like Abraham. Go on, you try. The point for us is to discover or maybe to rediscover what Abraham knew about God. Just look on to verse 14 in the chapter. Verse 14, the place isn't called Abraham obeyed. It's called, verse 14, the Lord will provide. That is the big point of this chapter. God can be trusted because, point two, God will provide the sacrifice. So back in verse 8, we heard Abraham say, God will provide. And in verse 13, if you look on, he does. Look at verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. Uh, Do you remember Abraham said he was expecting a lamb? Um, But the lamb, you'll know, comes later in the story. But look at the end of verse 13. 
Last four, last four words of verse 13. Instead of his son. It's the first explicit mention in the Bible of one dying in the place of another. God is teaching us how he's going to keep his promise. Even in the face of death, even when everything says it's impossible, God is going to provide a sacrifice so that people can live. So like I said, can you see that this isn't some kind of new idea that just pops up in Isaiah 53 or that kind of Paul makes up in the New Testament to make, him fit, make it fit? It is right here from the start. And this is a chapter that explicitly points ahead. Again, look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Again, it says, verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. So it's not a name that looks backward. It doesn't say the Lord provided, but looks forward. The Lord will provide. And the rest of that verse 14 continues that forward look. Look how it goes on. As it is said, to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. So our author is telling us explicitly that God's provision in Genesis 22 is a picture of what's to come. Uh, Later in the Bible, we're actually told that Mount Moriah, where this happens, is the same place where Solomon builds the temple. So verse 14, the Mount of the Lord is the temple mount where sacrifices were offered in place of the people. And then as we open the New Testament, you may even have recognised it as we um, read the chapter. The language here is picked up. So at Jesus' baptism, as God announces him, he says, this is my son whom I love. Then as John the Baptist sees him from the distance, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then as Jesus goes into his death, John the Apostle gets excited about the fact that Jesus carries his own cross on his back. And like Isaac's silence in this chapter, Jesus opens not his mouth. God's promises can be trusted. Because point two, he will provide the sacrifice. Uh, From our privileged point of view, he has provided the sacrifice that guarantees his promises. Because look on to verse 15. That's the link we're meant to end on. Verse 15, we we finish with God reiterating promises that he's made already in Genesis, but with some some added um, extras. So look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And that's new in Genesis. We've had promises, but that intro is new. God starts with an oath. It's like he promises that he will keep his promise. Uh, He doesn't need to, God's word is enough, but it's like he gives us extra reassurance. It's like he takes his child and doesn't just say, yeah, I promise I'll do that. But he kind of takes him and looks him in the eye and says, I I promise that I will do what I have said. So we can be doubly sure. And then just look at verse 17. A couple of verses on, verse 17, God says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring. Again, they're promises we've had before, except for that word, surely. So again, not that God's promises were ever uncertain, but now we can see how they're going to happen. God is going to provide a sacrifice that guarantees his promises. He's got it covered, and whatever's going on around us, we can leave it to him. But you, you might be wondering about those two becauses. Maybe they're making you feel a bit uneasy. At middle of verse 16, if you look back, God says, because you have done this, Or end of verse 18, just on, because you have obeyed. You might be thinking, but does this depend on my performance? Um, I I could never pass this kind of test. 
I think there's two things we need to say. First of all, before this in Genesis, it has been very clear that God makes promises to Abraham even though he's an utter failure. Everything God promises is by his grace. But that doesn't mean God has stopped caring about obedience. Actually, he is so committed to providing his promises that he provides the obedience that we can't. Look again at verse 18. God says, verse 18, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So why is it that blessing will come to the nations like us? Why can we be certain that God will keep his promises even in spite of ourselves? Well, firstly, because Abraham is a picture of a representative. His obedience is a picture that God gives us. So God can bless people who don't deserve it. But second, look at verse 18, how that picture will be fulfilled in the promised offspring. He says, verse 18, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. We fail, we struggle, we are weak, but that is the whole point. God will do everything. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And in Jesus' death, in your place and in my place, it has been. So it might be easy to kind of pick the right number in our heads. But in practice, God's promises can look and feel very shaky. Maybe even as you came to church this morning, you might be crying out for for some reason or other, what is God doing? Maybe everything around us and inside us might scream that God can't be trusted. Maybe things are making you doubt that, is he good? Is his promises empty? Well, this morning, it's like God takes us to the extreme. He puts his own promises, even his own character, on the line so that he can show how committed he is. So that with Abraham, we can say to ourselves, we can say to each other when we need to, we will return because God will provide. God has provided the sacrifice that guarantees his promises. So whatever situation it is that weighs on us, God will certainly use it for good. Whatever struggle or pain we carry personally, God can be trusted. Whatever obstacles we see around us or inside us, God says, don't look at those. Look at what I have provided. The death of Jesus in your place, that shows I am good. I can be trusted. Let that answer your questions. Let that silence your screams. Why don't we close by praying that it would. Let's pray. Paul says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Father, we thank you so much that you can be trusted. Thank you that you are good. Lord, even when everything around us, everything inside us, makes us doubt, makes us question, makes us wonder what's going on, thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ you have proved once and for all that you love us, that you are for us, and that nothing can stop you delivering what you have promised. Our Father, we pray that as um, things uh, maybe weigh on our hearts even this morning, as things hit us in the the next week, in the next months, um, as things make us doubt or question, Lord, we pray that you would lift our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust that you are for us and trust like Abraham that you will do what you have said. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.